regardless of either one should be running. I mean, I'm 88, so I kind of appreciate, you know, how things go downhill in a hurry sometimes. Senior voters on senior candidates for Sunday, September 24th. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. A NASA probe landed in Utah today, bringing pieces of an asteroid back to Earth after a journey of hundreds of millions of miles. We'll hear more about the logistically challenging mission, and we'll give you the backstory on a trial of police officers in Washington state. Ellis was a father and a musician. He was a drummer at a local church. Then in this week's Enlighten Me, what it's like to wait for a loved one who's wrongfully detained in another country. You don't know why they raided your house. They are throwing like legal words at you that you have never heard before. First news headlines. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his team are working this weekend trying to shore up support for the latest Republican plan to prevent a partial government shutdown next weekend. He implored his Republican colleagues to drop their hardline tactics and work together to approve a conservative spending plan. And here's Mara Liason has more. The sticking point is that no matter how many concessions Speaker Kevin McCarthy makes to his hard-right Republicans, they will not vote to fund the government. So a shutdown does seem imminent by October 1st. We don't know how long a shutdown would last. But millions of federal workers would lose their paychecks. Some federal agencies would shut down, although Social Security and Medicare checks are supposed to continue to go out. But it would be a very big disruption. NPR's Mara Eliasson reporting. Meanwhile, the White House is warning federal agencies to be prepared. This as the United Auto Workers Union strike continues. President Biden says he will visit Michigan Tuesday and will walk a picket line in support of auto workers. This is thousands more. General Motors and Stellantis workers across the country went on strike this weekend. Stephen Basaha of the Gulf States Newsroom reports on the expansion of the United Auto Workers strike. This started as a targeted strike at just three assembly plants. And even with 38 more plants now joining in, it's still targeted. They're all much smaller plants that distribute parts rather than make them. But that's still going to be a problem for dealerships and car owners needing repairs. That's according to Shelley Thomas, a GM worker joining the strike in Mississippi. It's going to be a nightmare. They're not just ordering those parts just to order those parts. People need those parts. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain said the union did make significant progress negotiating with Ford, so no new plants are striking against that automaker for now. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Basaha in Tupelo, Mississippi. The OSIRIS-REx mission landed successfully in Utah's West Desert this morning. NASA's multi-year mission brought back the biggest sample yet from an asteroid. Caroline Ballard of member station KUER was there. It was a crisp, clear morning. The desert landscape glowed pink as the recovery team took off in helicopters to meet the capsule at its landing site. Systems engineer Anjani Pollitt has been waiting for this moment for years. The weather is perfect. It's a beautiful day here in Utah. It's hard to believe we're finally here for real. The capsule traveled billions of miles over seven years to bring the asteroid sample to Earth. It heads next to the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, to be opened and studied. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Ballard at the Utah Test and Training Range. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Attorney General Andrea Campbell is praising the Biden administration's response to the immigrant crisis in Massachusetts and elsewhere. That's despite Governor Maura Healey's recent call for additional federal resources to address the needs of immigrants coming into the state. Appearing on WCVB's On the Record, Campbell said that the president's new guidelines are welcomed. There is significant progress um, and changes the Biden administration just made that are useful, including around changing the the, the time to, uh, frame for processing these work permits. It was taking up to eight, eight months. They're saying now we're going to get it done in 30 days. That's huge. The president also extended temporary protected status for Venezuelans, although Boston has a much higher percentage of Haitian immigrants. The MBTA will begin inspecting its entire bus fleet tomorrow. The Boston Herald reported a recent inspection of 30 buses discovered widespread problems with emergency communications equipment. Issues include faulty covert microphones used by drivers to contact dispatchers and malfunctioning interior cameras. Four assaults yesterday near the campus of Berkeley College of Music in Boston are under investigation. Police said two people were assaulted on Haviland Street and one each on Mass Avenue and Boylston Street. No serious injuries were reported. The investigation is ongoing. The Patriots defeated the New York Jets this afternoon down in the Meadowlands by a score of 15-10. to 10. The Pats' next assignment is next Sunday when they travel to Dallas to take on the Cowboys. The Bruins open the preseason tonight at the TD Garden against the New York Rangers. And at last check, the Red Sox and White Sox were in a delay in the seventh inning with Chicago ahead by a score of 3-2. to two. Showers likely overnight with temperatures in the 50s, a chance of showers. Temps in the low 60s tomorrow. And then finally, partly sunny skies return, 60s on Tuesday. In Boston right now, 61 degrees. WBUR supporters include Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The other day in Zelianople, Pennsylvania, I asked 88-year-old David Reckless what's changed for him since he was 80. Energy. Energy. <laughs> I used to be more or less the energy bunny, you know. I mean, I still work out, you know. You seem pretty energetic. Uh, yeah, I know, but uh, <laughs> it's not what you think. More naps in my day, you know, that kind of thing. It's a question that's pretty relevant to next year's presidential election because President Joe Biden, who's 80 now, is running for a second term. He'd be 86 at the end of it. And Biden's most likely opponent, former President Donald Trump, is 77. To put it another way, if you judge it by the age at the start of their term, there's a good chance that next year voters will be choosing between the oldest and the second oldest presidents in U.S. history. My personal opinion is that neither one should be running. Things go downhill in a hurry sometimes. And uh, I think uh, both of them are probably in pretty good health right now, but two, three, four years down the road, I'd be concerned about that. For all the issues out there, including Trump's multiple felony indictments and upcoming trials, age, particularly Biden's age, has become a big factor in the race. Biden often jokes about it. I know I don't look that old, I know. I'm a little under 103. 
But when he stumbles in a speech or in real life... We do begin tonight with the frightening image today, President Biden falling on stage at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado It gets Springs. a lot of attention, and a slew of recent polls show voters have concerns. According to a new CBS poll, only 34 percent of voters think President Biden would actually make it through a second term if re-elected. So for our Sunday cover story, we decided to talk about all of this with some experts, older voters, people around the age of Trump and Biden. And not just any group of seniors, seniors who live in western Pennsylvania, a place that'll have an outsized role in deciding the next president. At our first stop, the Vintage Center for Active Adults in Pittsburgh, producer Connor Donovan and I ran into a problem. We wanted to interview people in a line dancing class. The organizers demanded a bit of a quid pro quo. Hey, you want something from us, we want something from you too. What's that? You want to do a dance with us. That's fair. Okay. <laughs> we hit the dance floor. This is a little call-out dance that Stella's going to call it out. Okay. Easy dance. Okay, here we go. All right, let's do it. And I'll admit, I struggled with some of the crossover steps especially. Way more than the regulars, like 70-year-old Nettie Hedding. She's line dancing five times a week. And that's just one item on her packed schedule. I sew, I play pinochle, I am learning bridge. Oh, yeah? I like things that challenge my, my brain. Henning says in theory she would like to see someone younger step up. But she supports Biden and thinks the questions about his age are being blown out of proportion. Sometimes does he look tired? Yeah. Heck, when I travel abroad, when I was much younger, I would be tired. Yeah. So I think that his health is in good standing. Her fellow line dancer, Len Zappler, sees things differently. He's 85, about the age Biden would be at the end of a second term. My chief worry is I'm losing it. And he's on the verge of losing it, I think. So I wouldn't want this guy out there running the the show. So when you think about his age and his ability to do the job, you're thinking about yourself? I'm thinking about, yeah. At the same time, Zappler is also a good example of a dynamic Biden's advisors repeatedly point to when asked about these polls showing so many voter concerns about Biden's age. They say all of that changes when voters think about the race as a choice. Zappler is a Republican. He voted for Trump in 2016 and again in 2020. But he says after the past few years, can't do it again. I'd be hard pressed to vote. But I think I'd vote for Biden if I had to. Yeah. But I, I, I hope he has a very stalwart and capable vice president. That's what I'm, I would pray for. To dig deeper into how older voters are thinking about all of this, we gathered a group from the greater Pittsburgh area. People from different political backgrounds who we sat down with at the Passivant community run by Lutheran Senior Life. And while more than one of our interviewees told us that age is just a number, we will start by having them list their ages. Susan Hughes. Uh, I'll be 77 in a couple weeks. John Fuller. I'm 81. Rosalie Bablack. I was 86 on Tuesday. And Preston Scheimer. And I'm 84. Oh, I am the youngest. (laughs) You are. (laughs) The panelists all agree on one thing, that young people have a lot of misconceptions about what it means to get older. Here's John. We live in a society where obsolescence is a reality. We discard things. We get rid of it. I think young people sometimes think that older people are the same way. And Rosalie. I think it's important that we let young people know it's not frightful. Mm -hmm. The passage of life is good. 
and it's good at being old. We enjoy ourselves, too. We have fun. But when it comes to the age of the likely presidential candidates in 2024, views begin to diverge. When you see coverage of President Biden, when you pay attention to the news, what what has stood out to you? What stands out to me is that Joe Biden is coping with his aging process very well. He's kept his diet down. He's lean and, and slim. His mental acuity is sharp as anything. You couldn't accomplish what he's done. Trump is a little bit different in that he represents a heart attack waiting to happen because he's proud of the fact that he eats McDonald's on a regular basis, so those kind of things. And his lifestyle is one that um, makes me wonder about his health. What about you, John? I would say looking at the two, the optics tell me Trump would be the better candidate from a physical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a cognitive standpoint, probably they're about the same. Rosalie, what about you? Well, I honestly wish we had younger candidates because I do believe in the wisdom of age, but I know that I process slower and I know that my friends do. And the world is very dangerous. We have enemies. We have someone who sits in the Oval Office who's going to touch the button if we're going to have nuclear war. As I look at President Biden, I have real concerns. Is there anything particular that stood in your mind that you saw that, that made you say that? Yes. I think the way he walks stiffly. I understand that. We've had walking classes here. And sometimes when he seems not to be able to remember things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're only assessing from the outside. Um, when I look at President Trump, I think, and I'm not sure I'm allowed to say this, I think he's a street fighter. I like you him. You can say it. I think we fared well under him. I don't like the personal attacks that we are seeing. I think we've come a long way from the civility that I'd like to see. Sue, what about you? I I think Rosalie had a great answer. And I I would add that I think it's time to pass the baton, because if you don't train the people behind you, there's going to be a vacuum. We've got lots of capable people in their 50s. And I feel sad that people feel the need to hold on to power. Now, you've all kind of hinted at this. There's the age issue in this election. But there's a lot of big political issues to talk about right now. So I'm wondering, of all the things you're thinking about when you're thinking about this election, where does the age of the candidates fit in? The wisdom that I got from my father-in-law, who's a um, professor of history at Cornell, was you evaluate the person based on the people that that man or woman also brings to the table. Who are they going to be their advisors? Because you're basically electing a team. I think it's clear that I think that Biden is, has a far better team. Of course, I would kind of disagree <laughs> because I like Pompeo and some of them, you know. But he didn't last. <laughs> um, there's still policies that I like. And I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this, but I'm a Catholic and Joe Biden says he's a Catholic and he isn't standing by the things that I abide by. Are you particularly talking about abortion? That's one of the things. There are other things uh, because I feel like life is valuable. Mm -hmm. And my concern with all of this is that we're saying to our young people that human life has no value. Let me 
put this in, into the broader context of the race with a couple show of hands questions. How many of you think generally President Biden's doing a good job as president? We got two hands, one kind of so-so. <laughs> <laughs> How many of you thought President Trump did a good job as president? Rosalie's got her hand up. <laughs> of course. Sue, what about you? I'm a Republican, and I favor the policies that uh, the Trump-Pence team put forward. But uh, one thing that bothered me and caused me then to vote for President Biden was Mr. Trump's character. Mm -hmm. It's just tearing apart the fabric of our culture, I think. When I look at Trump and I look at Biden, I feel very good that in Biden's administration, there seems to be order. In Trump's administration, there was always consternation, <laughs> always challenge, and he was on the news every day. So, and of course, you don't have that with President Biden. I, I personally like that. Any advice you would give to Joe Biden or Donald Trump <laughs> as, as you sit here in front of a microphone? Make your legacy in recruiting and passing on for the good of the country. And the same with Mitch McConnell and Einstein. It's just kind of embarrassing. I guess my advice to Donald Trump would be to tell the truth for a change. My advice to um, Joe Biden would be learn how to camouflage your walk because that's where the criticism is coming from. I guess it would just be candid on the subject. Yeah. Advice to both, don't run. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for coming and having this conversation I really appreciate it thanks to all of you You're welcome. thanks to you You're welcome. that was John Fuller Preston Scheimer Susan Hughes and Rosalie Bablack senior voters who will help decide who wins Pennsylvania maybe the election and next year's presidential race you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News Thanks for joining us at 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. So glad you're spending part of your Sunday with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington presenting Fat Ham. The 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Join Juicy, the saucy protagonist, in a sharp, deliciously funny take on the Shakespeare classic Fat Ham, playing now through October 29th at the Huntington Calderwood. HuntingtonTheater.org. Showers likely overnight with lows in the 50s, showers low 60s tomorrow, partly sunny and 60s on Tuesday. WBUR supporters include Gore Place and their handmade for the holidays craft fair. Shop outdoors from more than 30 crafters and fiber artists. Next Saturday in Waltham, goreplace.org. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. salemstate.edu slash graduate. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is trying to convince fellow Republicans to pass spending bills to avoid a partial government shutdown next weekend. The White House, meanwhile, is asking federal agencies to be prepared just in case. President Biden is heading to Michigan Tuesday to visit striking auto workers and march in a picket line in support. This as the UAW expanded its strike to include more General Motors and Stellantis facilities. 
The strike was not extended against Ford because union officials say that automaker made significant progress in negotiations. And at the weekend box office, the horror film The Nun 2 took the top spot for the third straight week, bringing in an estimated $8.4 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and super centers or at SmartMouth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. In Washington state, a trial has just gotten underway that was years in the making. Back in 2021, Washington's attorney general charged three Tacoma police officers with murder and manslaughter in the 2020 killing of an unarmed black man named Manuel Ellis. It was the first time the office had charged police officers with unlawful use of deadly force. Jury selection in that case began this week, and KNKX public radio reporter Maya Ina has been following the case for the past two years. She, Kari Plogue, and Will James co-host the KNKX and Seattle Times podcast all about it called The Walk Home. And she joins us now. Hi, Maya. Hi, Scott. So let's just start with this. Who was Manny Ellis? Manny Ellis was a 33-year-old black man from Tacoma, Washington. And just for reference, Mm -hmm. Tacoma is a major city about 35 miles south of Seattle. And Ellis was a father and a musician. He was a drummer at a local church he had been attending regularly. And he was known to have struggled with drug use and mental health at times. But his family said he appeared to be doing better when he encountered two Tacoma police officers on the night of March 3rd. And you have done so much reporting on what happened that night. Tell us tell us what we need to know about that. Right. So the basics are that Ellis was walking back from a 7-Eleven that night with some snacks when officers stopped him. Officers say he was messing with a car in the intersection. And when they stopped him, they say he attacked them and they engaged in a violent struggle. Ellis died in police custody that night. Uh, but months later, his name became part of rallying cries during the racial justice protests of 2020. And now, three years later, the officers are on trial for his death. And who are these officers? So the officers charged in the case are Christopher Shane Burbank and Matthew Collins. Those were the first two that Ellis encountered that night. Mm-hmm. And Timothy Rankin, who arrived later as backup. And a big part of the story is how long it took for, for charges to be filed. It took more than a year from this incident taking place. Tell us why it took so long. What was going on? Right. So there's a few reasons for that. First, few people outside of the Ellis family and the initial investigating agency took notice that Ellis had died while in police custody. So his death didn't receive very much attention for months. And then George Floyd died. Mm -hmm. And that brought a lot of awareness to police custody deaths, including around here. Just days after Floyd's death, we learned the medical examiner here ruled Ellis's death, a homicide caused by a lack of oxygen due to physical restraint. And that contradicted the initial police narrative that Ellis may have died from so-called excited delirium. 
And that really turned Ellis's name into a rallying cry and just started this domino effect. So what happened next once this got a little bit of publicity? After that, multiple eyewitness videos of the encounter came out. And then a potential conflict of interest led the governor to step in and ask the attorney general to review the case. So that's how it ended up in the attorney general's office. And ultimately, they filed criminal charges. Mm-hmm. The office released a 21-page charging document detailing down to the second everything they say officers did that night that support criminal charges. And we took an in-depth look at the charging decision on our podcast. All right, let's listen to some of that reporting. This is from the podcast, The Walk Home. And a note to listeners, this is a minute-by-minute account of what happened that night, and it includes graphic descriptions of violence. 11.11 p.m. Manny buys some raspberry-filled powdered donuts and a bottle of water from 7-Eleven, where he's a regular. He tells the clerks goodnight and walks out the door. 11-16. Officers Burbank and Collins are doing a quick traffic stop down the road about a mile or so. 11-20. Manny walking on the sidewalk and the officers driving in their patrol car are heading toward 96 and Ainsworth. This is when the officers say they saw Manny in the street, messing with a car. And he was at the passenger door, working the handle. But they couldn't give a detailed description of that car to sheriff's investigators. I don't remember at all. I just remember he went directly to the front passenger door. Prosecutors don't seem to buy that story. They say none of the witnesses even saw Manny in the intersection. Charges say audio and video evidence backs that up. 11.21 p.m. Manny walks up to the officers who are stopped at the traffic light. They talk casually, like they know each other. About 10 or 15 seconds later. As Manny turns to walk away, Officer Burbank strikes him with the passenger door, knocking him down. I uh, used my uh, door to actually door check him. Two witnesses pull out their cell phones and start recording. Sarah McDowell and Sam Cowden. Sarah is the woman who stopped her car to record the video, the one that later became national news. Stop! Oh my God, stop hitting Sam is a pizza delivery driver. He stops his car on Ainsworth Avenue with a clear view of Manny and the officers. They're struggling on the ground straight ahead, the headlights from the police cruiser shining on them. 46 seconds after Burbank door checks Manny. Burbank lifts up Manny and slams him into the pavement, striking him with his fist. Collins is on top of Manny, punching him in the head. Manny screams after each punch. 10 seconds later. The pizza delivery driver's video shows Collins putting Manny in a chokehold as Burbank aims a taser at him. Manny isn't fighting back. He puts his hands up like he's surrendering. The officers respond with force. Collins pulls back on his neck, rolling him into the pavement. Burbank fires taser probes into Manny's chest. As Manny goes limp, Collins releases the chokehold and presses down on Manny's head or neck. 14 seconds past 11.22 p.m. Burbank radios their location. Officers Rankin and Ford are already on their way. Rankin has a bad feeling. I was thinking the worst, um, that Officer Burbank and Officer Collins most likely were either dead or shot. 12 seconds later. Burbank tases Manny again, 
The officers keep applying pressure on him. 25 seconds past 11.23 p.m., two minutes into this struggle. Manny cries out. It's picked up on the doorbell camera, 112 feet away. Fifteen seconds later, Manny pleads with them again. This time, one of the officers responds. It sounds like one of them says, shut the up. 31 seconds past 11.24 p.m. Officers Ford and Rankin arrive. Burbank is on Manny's back. Collins is holding his legs. Then Rankin applies all of his weight to Manny's body. Manny tells them he can't breathe again. It was the first time I actually heard this subject even speak, and the first thing he said to me was, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. But he said it in a very, not in a distressed voice, in almost a very calm, normal voice. I remember telling the individual, I was like, if you're talking to me, you can breathe just fine. Manny says he can't breathe at least four times in the first minute Rankin is there just after 11.25 p.m. Officers hogtie Manny, tying his hands and feet together behind his back. A Tacoma police sergeant at the scene clicks on his radio. Prosecutors say those were Manny's last known words. By then, Manny had said he couldn't breathe at least seven times. That was an excerpt of the KNKX and Seattle Times podcast, The Walk Home, co-hosted by reporter Maya Ina, who's who's with me now. And, and Maya, I think a lot of listeners are probably with me in, in really dwelling on those words, I can't breathe. You know, we've heard them over and over again in so many deaths at the hands of, of, of police officers. I'm thinking about Eric Garner and, and, and George Floyd as, as, as well as this case. I'm just wondering, how have these officers responded to these charges? Right. So currently, all three officers remain on paid leave, and they've all pleaded not guilty. They do not dispute that they engaged in the physical struggle. One of the officers even described it to investigators as a melee. But since we've reported that episode, we've spoken to some of their lawyers, and one of them told us he viewed the case as a drug tragedy, so essentially an overdose. Is that a possibility? The medical examiner did find a significant amount of meth in Ellis's system that night, and as I mentioned, he was known to have used drugs in the past. Um, but the medical examiner listed meth as a contributing factor, not the primary cause. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be a major point of contention in the trial. But ultimately, the officers say, you know, they followed their training that night. They needed to respond with that level of force in order to restrain Ellis, to protect um, himself, to protect themselves, and to protect the public. Um, And they say that he died that night from an overdose, not from their restraints. Manny Ellis died in 2020. These charges came in 2021. Uh, It's now a couple years later. Why has it taken so long to get to this point today? 
Yeah. Um, so as we talked about, Manny Ellis died before George Floyd and the officers involved in the Floyd case have been charged, prosecuted and sentenced before this trial even started. Um, even the Tyree Nichols case that we've heard a little bit about in other media reporting, that feels like it's moving a little bit faster than the Ellis case. Um, Nichols died in January and those officers have been fired and charged already. Um, but this case was slow from the start. Aside from everything that it took to get to the charges, there have also been a series of delays related to logistical and legal issues that have just continued to push it back until now. Mm-hmm. This is also just a really complicated case. We hear more about it these days. We've talked about a couple different cases already, but it's still very rare for officers anywhere to be charged criminally for use of force. It just doesn't happen that often. So it is a big decision. And some of the complexity here comes from the density of the case. And the law and and the evidence can be detailed and complicated and and, and at times confusing when it comes to cases like this. There's a lot of different evidence to go through. How have the legal teams been preparing for this trial? Yeah, it's been a massive effort. The legal teams have submitted over 100,000 pages of documents, and the potential witness list is in the hundreds. So preparing for this case and understanding all of that just takes a lot of time. We also know that county court officials took a trip to Minneapolis, where the Derek Chauvin trial took place, to learn from how they did things there. So it's just been a lot of preparation happening at all levels around this case that have pushed it to this point. We mentioned before that that jury selection is ongoing. Take us through what happens next in this trial, uh, how long we expect this all to take. Yeah, so we're expecting at least another week of jury selection. They've amassed a pretty big jury pool uh, because this case has gotten so much attention. And so once jury selection is over, oral arguments will begin. And we're expecting that around October 2nd is when it's scheduled for. Mm -hmm. And we think the whole trial will last somewhere between six to 10 weeks. But, you know, even after the verdict comes in, the case doesn't really end there. These officers still technically have their jobs. So their employment is still an outstanding question and we're waiting to see how the verdict will impact that how the verdict will impact the department and the community and especially the ellis family that's knkx reporter Maya Ina talking about the murder and manslaughter trial of three police officers in tacoma washington where jury selection is ongoing knkx in partnership with seattle times produced the walk home podcast which won a murrow award in 2023 you can listen to the walk home wherever you get your podcasts You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Earlier today, scientists watched nervously as an object the size of a mini-fridge hurtled toward the Earth. 
It looked like a mini UFO, blackened and charred from its fiery descent through the atmosphere. And as it fell toward a military range in the desert outside of Salt Lake City, Utah, it deployed an orange and white striped parachute to slow its fall. Touchdown. I repeat, FRC has touchdown. This was the triumphant end of a seven-year NASA mission to collect rocks from an asteroid. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce is here to tell us why scientists wanted the rocks and why their safe arrival is such a big deal. Hey, Nell. Hey there. So you've been following this mission for a while, haven't you? Yep, yep. It launched back in 2016. It's called the OSIRIS-REx mission. And the spacecraft went to an asteroid called Bennu. Uh, And at the time that it grabbed some rocks from this asteroid in October of 2020, that asteroid was about 200 million miles from Earth. It's this, you know, rocky, boulder-strewn place, not that big, like about the size of the Empire State Building. And the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft had this arm with a collection device at the end, and it just kind of touched the asteroid briefly. I mean, just the, the logistics that, that went into this are extraordinary and, and so impressive, thinking about, you know, what it takes to get that far away to such a small place, get the sample, get it back, get it here safely. All of that has to go right. But I guess the question is, why go through all this trouble and spend all this money for some rocks? Yeah, I mean, asteroids are space rocks, but they're also remnants of the early solar system. So scientists think they're basically like leftovers from when the planets were forming. And even though asteroid material falls to Earth as meteorites all the time, Mm -hmm. that stuff is contaminated with the terrestrial materials here on Earth. And what they really want is pristine samples from an asteroid that would let them study the early chemistry that was there at the very beginning and help them understand, you know, the, the chemistry that could have ultimately been around and helped lead to the evolution of life. So the capsule has made it back to Earth safely. What happens next? When do they start opening it up and, and actually studying these rocks? So the capsule gets flown to Houston tomorrow morning to NASA's Johnson Space Center. There's a lab there that's been set up with all kinds of special cabinets and things that will keep it uncontaminated while it's being studied. The idea is that they're going to open up the canister that's inside maybe late Monday, Tuesday morning. Immediately, they're going to see some dust that they're going to rush to, you know, put under microscopes and do other tests. But the real prize will be inside this collection device that's inside the canister. That's the gizmo that actually touched the asteroid that has like the real rocks and like inch sized rocks and pebbles inside. They plan to open that the first week of October. And NASA says it's going to have this big event to reveal what's been found on October 11th. Now, this isn't the first time that that, that asteroid material has been brought back to Earth, right? Didn't Japan do something similar? Yeah, that was a different asteroid. This time, there's going to be a lot more material. In fact, this is the most space stuff that's been brought back to Earth by any nation since the days of Apollo, when, you know, astronauts were bringing back big moon rocks. And so in this return capsule that landed today, they think they got about eight ounces or about a cup of asteroid stuff. A cup of asteroids. Uh, We'll we'll see what what, what that tells us. NPR's Nell Greenfield-Boyce, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR, and we certainly are glad you are. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio.
Coming up next at uh, 6 o'clock, the New Yorker Radio Hour. Flu season is around the corner, and COVID's been on a bit of an upswing. And what about RSV? What experts are expecting from this infectious disease season? Tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Volante Farms in Needham, reminding you to shop, eat, and drink local this fall. Enjoy homegrown farm-to-table meals to go twice a week. VolanteFarms.com for menus. And the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical. Now through November 5th, more at TheUmbrellaArts.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom this weekend signed several bills into law bolstering the state's protections for LGBTQ plus people. This after he vetoed a bill Friday that would have required judges to consider whether a parent of affirms a child's gender identity in custody and visitation arraignments. Nosim says there's already a law that enforces that. France is set to end its military cooperation with Niger and pull its 1,500 troops out of the country by year's end because of the coup that took place in July. French President Emmanuel Macron says he will also recall France's ambassador from the country. And NASA's first asteroid samples are back on Earth after the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft landed in the Utah desert this morning. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a variety of native shrubs and trees for a landscape that's gentler on the earth. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com slash native shrubs. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. This past week, five American hostages being held in Iran got their lives back. They were released as part of a deal between the U.S. and Iran in which President Biden agreed to unfreeze $6 billion in Iranian assets. The freed Americans flew from Tehran to Qatar and then back home to the U.S., where they were finally reunited with their families. There were long embraces and tears of relief and joy. But Yagana Rezaian saw something else. I looked at the faces of their wives and their children and how, despite the fact that their husbands were now sitting next to them in that picture, you still see the pain and the fear. Yagana, or Yegi as she's called, has lived this experience. Her husband, Jason Rezaian, is the Washington Post reporter who was held in Iran's Avin prison for 544 days on false charges of espionage. He was released in January of 2016. NPR's Rachel Martin got to know Jason and Yegi when they both moved to Washington, D.C. She's interviewed Jason before about his experience in captivity, but for this week's Enlighten Me, Rachel talked to Yegi about what it's like to be the one waiting on the other side. 
Yegi actually knows what it's like to be wrongfully detained from the inside out. I was detained for 72 days, or let's say two and a half months, um, and Jason was detained for 18 months. I wanted to understand what had kept Yegi sane during that time, how she kept the despair at bay, how she learned to live for that year and a half not knowing when or if her husband would be released, if they would ever have the life they dreamed of having. The man who would become your husband, Jason mm-hmm. Rosian, <laughs> was working as a reporter in mm-hmm. Tehran for the Washington Post and other outlets. What was your first impression of him? Well-read, well-traveled, very open-minded, very sweet, a little bit disheveled. I had to fix his style. <laughs> You had to fix his style after you got together. (laughs) (laughs) So you have this good life for a while, right? You get married. Life um, is good. Yeah, we got married. I got a very good job. We had a rental apartment, but it was really cute. Everything seemed good. So then this awful day happens. In July 2014, you and Jason were arrested for espionage. You were both kept in a Veen prison in Tehran, which is where political prisoners are held and, and people who dare to speak out against the regime. Can mm-hmm. you walk me through, Yegi, the anxiety that was coursing through you in those early days? Uh, it's impossible to capsule it in a few words or a few sentences because... There's a lot happening in those moments, especially in those early hours. You don't know why they raided your house. They are throwing like legal words at you that you have never heard before. They are talking about things that sound foolish to you, but then that's what they are calling you. Those things like spy or that you are hiding it. Um, Dark is like dark hours, dark days, dark moments is the simplest way to describe. Um, You were lost. Jason was taken away from me. I haven't seen him. I didn't see him for 37 days. Jason wrote in his memoir that after that you were allowed to see each other right in this very controlled environment guards are watching you yes for for, for a, a few, few minutes, minutes. yes first of all i was not told that i'm going to see him they just very mm, quickly and abruptly take me out of my cell um and i was quite worried because every time they come and get you in that the situation is so bad and terrifying that actually after a couple of nights you feel safe in that cell Mm -hmm. but every time they come and get you you're worried about are they taking me for mock executions are they taking me for violent interrogations are they taking me to torture me are they taking me like so many different unknown uncertain unexpected um situations so we were told for that first meeting that uh, I was not allowed to say any words and I had to 
follow the rule. And I didn't say any words until I, the moment I saw Jason and imagine that was like mm-hmm. 40 days almost and he had lost 40 pounds and he did not look like himself. His face was so pale and his beard grew so long and I could see his eyes were like obvious that he was deprived from food and water and he must have cried a lot. And then I started screaming. And then I remember the prison guard was like, we said you cannot talk. I said, I'm not talking, I'm screaming. (laughs) I'm laughing now, but uh, anyway. You were eventually released. And Jason was not. For more than a year, you lived in this purgatory waiting to understand what was going to happen to your husband the the situation gets so complicated that it's so easy to forget about the family members who are going through the same ordeal but with different circumstances i remember after a few months when i was released the situation was so tough that i was telling my mom or my sister that I feel like it was easier when I was in prison because I was a little bit more aware or every now and then I would get to see one of these interrogators. But now I am out and I don't know where he is. I don't know how Mm. he does. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who's deciding and what they are deciding. And I feel very helpless. There's nothing I can do that would make his situation slightly better. And you didn't know when it was going to end or if it was going to end. So how... That's right. (laughs) This is the big question, but what did you lean on in that time? I mean, where did you go for solace? Where did you find it? Where did you find some kind of respite? Rachel, you won't believe if I tell you that many years later, I'm still exhausted from those days. It was an uncertain, scary situation, but I remember it as a very lonely situation. I didn't have anyone to talk to because I didn't have Jason, who was not just my husband, was my best friend, was my whole world to talk to. And then I didn't want to talk about so many things with my parents because I didn't want to pressure them. Like there was no point in sharing more uncertainties or sad feelings or my pain because they were already there. They were witnessing it. They were going through it with me every step of the way. So for the first two months when I got out, I didn't do anything. I just sat on a couch in my parents' house. I didn't do anything. I didn't go out. I didn't even go back to our apartment. Like I was paralyzed physically and mentally. And I remember one day my sister, she and I are only 13 months apart. So we are like really, really close, like almost like twins. She came home from work and around 6 p.m. 
There's this saying in Farsi in our language that says like you have lost your everything. Like there is no color beyond darkness or blackness. You are already in that black hole. So what else do you have to mm. lose, right? And then she said, um, you have lost everything. Your world is black, black. Why are you sitting here for the past two months and doing nothing? <laughs> I owe this to my sister for pushing me. So the next morning I woke up at 5 a.m. and I was standing in front of the foreign ministry at 7 a.m. And I hand delivered a letter for the former foreign minister. And that was the beginning of all the moves. And I remember walking a lot. I would walk everywhere to these offices all around Tehran by foot. Not just because I couldn't afford to get a taxi or a bus mm. or da da da, but I needed to feel in my time and just keep going and thinking mm. and um, plus there's like a there's like a forward motion. You, I mean, it is like yes, this cliche, but one, one step. You just keep taking one step. And that was not my thought at the moment. And I knew that I was being chased at many different occasions. And I thought to myself, okay, these people are playing with my life. I'm going to play with them. So from that day, I just left the house every morning. Honestly, at 7 a.m., winter, snow, rain, and I walked around the city and every day I found a purpose to do something, like write this letter and deliver it to this office and that office. So I would spend my afternoons drafting these letters in Farsi and English, walking, exercising. You were living, Yegi. You, you were living, which was an act of defiance. Yeah, I decided that... Um, they have taken everything away from me, but I have to move forward. Eventually, after 544 days, Jason was released as part of a prisoner exchange with Iran, and he and Yegi flew to the U.S. to start over. It's been seven years, and they have built a beautiful life here. But for Yegi, the grief of all that time lost still lingers just beneath the surface. You know, every time there's one of these stories of a hostage being released, whether it's Iran, like this past week, or Brittany Griner, or the Venezuelans, or the two Reuters journalists, were imprisoned in Myanmar a mm -hmm. few years ago. I relived the whole thing. That day I can't cook. I'm barely able to work. It's just I'm paralyzed. What was it like this past week when these hostages came home for uh, you? Uh, you went through that same emotional paralysis? Pretty much. But I think there has been a change in recent situations and that's that now that I am a mom, believe it or not, Rachel, I try to 
I turned the TV off. I turned all my notifications off on my cell phone. I don't check any Twitter or Instagram or news. And if Jason has to do interviews, I honestly kick him out of the house and go to my son's bedroom and I just play with him because I do not want to remember or I do not want to relieve that pain. Did it change you on a spiritual level? And when I say that, Yegi, I mean not not in any kind of religious way. Did it change what you believe about human nature? Did it change your view on the permanence or impermanence of things? Yes. Um, first of all, it taught me patience. I was not a very patient person at all. If you ask Jason, he says, I'm still not. <laughs> but I learned that the whole world can stop. So you spend a little bit longer time with your loved ones. It's okay if you don't take a train today and instead go tomorrow. Yes, it's the job. It's important. Money is involved. But what I have learned is that everything we have in this world and in this life that we live supposedly only one time is your people. Your husband, your child, your mother, your brother, your sister, and the whole world can wait for me to love my people a little bit longer. Yegi, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Thank you so much. I think it's helpful. Yagana Razayan, Senior Research Director at the Committee to Protect Journalists.